Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Archives Guy podcast, episode 9.3, The World-Famous Galtarina Gardens. This is the third part of our series looking at the history of hockey in Cambridge. Previously, we looked at the Preston Rivulets and Hespler Hockey Sticks. I want to thank everyone for the response to these episodes so far, as it's been great. I also want to update everyone on another previous episode. Episode 8, we looked at the untold story of six Chinese men who survived the sinking of the RMS Titanic in 1912. One of these men was named Li Bing, and he may have settled in Galt and worked as the manager of the White Rose Cafe on Main Street, today where the Patch Store is located. On April 16th, 2021, one day after the 109th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, the documentary film The Six which tells the story of these six men, will be debuting in Chinese theaters. They have since released a brand new theatrical trailer for the movie as well. It's even been featured on Hollywood websites like Variety, which is pretty awesome. Hopefully news of a North American release is coming soon. It's an incredible story of the world's most famous uh, ship and a possible connection to our area. Check it out if you haven't already. I'll keep everyone posted if I hear any more information. Now back to the story for this episode. The Galt Arena Gardens, or just Galt Arena, is one of the most iconic landmarks in Cambridge. Located on Shade Street in Galt, it was built over the course of 1921 and opened in 1922 before it was even completed. That means we're quickly approaching its 100th anniversary of uh, its opening. It's not the oldest hockey arena in the world, that title goes to Boston's 1910-built Matthews Arena. However, the Galt Arena boasts of being the oldest continuing operating arena in the world. Fires and renovations have resulted in entire seasons at Matthews Arena in Boston being lost, whereas Galt has continued to operate since 1922, even with renovations and a fire. Now, it wasn't the first skating rink in Galt. According to Jim Quantrell's A Part of Our Past, that honor goes to a skating rink erected in 1864 east of, of Mill Street. It measured 200 feet by 70 feet and was flooded through pipes connected to a mill pond on Mill Creek. This was followed by a curling and skating rink erected in Dixon Park in 1876. This facility consisted of two curling rinks and a skating rink that measured 136 feet by 40 feet. This facility was in turn replaced by a skating rink erected at Queen's Square in about 1887. This building measured 175 feet by 75 feet overall, with an ice service of 160 by 60 feet. He notes that there was not much space for spectators, and after the 1920-21 Galt Terriers won the Ontario Hockey Association Intermediate Championship, the local press suggested uh, that the Terriers' victory awoke, uh, awakened um, community interest in providing a suitable facility for its hockey heroes. It seems as likely that the local sporting fraternity was somewhat embarrassed and chagrined by the inability of Queen Square Arena to accommodate the crowds that wanted to follow the Terriers' pursuit of the uh, Provincial Intermediate Championship. Eventually, it was decided to move all of Galt's home games to the Lother Street Arena in Preston, as it held up to 2,500 fans. 
Now, you might remember the Lowther Street Arena, which was built in 1913 as the home of the amazing Preston Rivulets. Enthusiasm for hockey was growing at an exponential rate, and plans began for the building of a suitable arena in Galt. You have to keep in mind that the NHL itself began operations in 1917. Quantrell's book outlines some uh, background information on what eventually led to the construction of the Galt Arena. So it was the Galt Amateur Athletic Association that took up the challenge to build the arena. The GAAA, we'll use the uh, acronym uh, to short form it, has, um, had been organized on the initiative of one W.W. Wilkinson at a meeting held in the Galt Council Chambers on March 31st, 1919. The meeting was described as a mass meeting of the followers of sport who recognized the necessity of a revival of sports with the return of peace. Now, peace in this case meant the end of the First World War. It was the intention of uh, the new organization to coordinate amateur sport in Galt with the view to provide good, clean amateur sport. Mr. Wilkinson was named the association's first chairman, and in outlining the objectives of the organization, he suggested that a new arena might prove an appropriate project. A committee chaired by Mr. A.R. Goldie was struck to look into the matter. At the next meeting of the GAAA on April 20th, 1920, Mr. Goldie reported that his committee had gone carefully into the matter and had learned that a building to accommodate up to 4,000 spectators and equipped with an artificial ice-making machine would cost approximately $180,000. Now, this is 100 years ago. Because of the heavy expense, no further action was taken at the time. However, the GAAA was not content to let the matter die and later in 1920 convened a special meeting to reconsider the arena project. Then came the Terrier's success in the winter of 1920-21 and with it a renewed uh, community interest in a new arena. At the April 15, 1921 meeting of the GAAA, a special committee on the arena project consisting of, among others, Mr. D, uh, Mr. Sorry, W. W. Wilkinson, Colonel A. J. Oliver, A. M. Willard, George Hancock, and Alderman J. E. Gardner, reported only that progress was being made, but provided very few details. The local press noted later, however, that they had been working quietly, saying little, but um, gradually nearing the goal. The committee visited various arenas and on July 23, 1921, announced the opening of a campaign attended to, intended to raise from fifty-five dollars to $65,000 of the estimated $90,000 needed for the arena building project. Approximately $37,000 was raised in short order, but the goal was still some way off when a meeting was called September 1, 1921, to assess the situation. It was decided that a systematic canvas of citizens should be carried out. When this was completed, a further $19,000 was raised, bringing the total to $56,000. The GAAA then approached the City Council with the request for a loan of $35,000. In a plebiscite held on October 29th, the electorate approved the loan. The race was now on 
to have the facility completed in the time for at least part of the 1921-1922 hockey season. Work on the foundation had begun on October 14, even before the loan uh, from the city had been approved. In the latter part of November, the steel framing was erected, and and work began on the exterior walls and the seating. Considerable work still remained to be completed on January 13, 1922, when the arena's floor received its first flooding for the January 22nd hockey game between the Terriers and the Preston Intermediate Club that was to officially open the arena. The Galt Arena was still incomplete when on January 22nd um, arrived, but that it didn't uh, seem to dampen the enthusiasm of the crowd that came to help open the arena. The building was which was constructed of steel, concrete, stone, and brick, promised to be, quote, one of the city's showplaces, and in connection with our other playgrounds and parks, will establish this city's claim to be ranked as one of the best-equipped cities in Canada for the promotion of athletic sports. The arena was 130 feet by 240 feet, with an ice surface of, of 85 feet by 185 feet. Its seating capacity was variously reported at 4,500 or 3,000 or 2,090 people, with standing room for 1,020 private boxes, each which could accommodate six people. Among the other outstanding features of the $95,000 building were the seats and the lighting. The spectators' line of sight was of ultimate importance, and it was claimed that no matter what point uh, a person is uh, seated, they have a clear, unobstructed view of the ice surface. In addition, the Shade Street frontage is of an artistic design constructed of the finest brick with sunken mortar and stone trimmings. There are two towerlets constructed mostly of stone to break the line uh, of the roof and over the entrance there will be a marquee. It's unclear whether the marquee was ever added prior to the arena's most recent renovations. But this was a matter of no importance to a sellout crowd that watched the Terriers defeat, uh, defeat Preston 5 to nothing. It was reported that some venturesome youths even climbed up to the steel arches of the roof and from there viewed the game. Clearly, the arena was well received by Galtonians, but just as clearly, it soon proved anything but a resounding financial success. By 1929, the operating company had reportedly fallen $54,000 behind in loan payments and taxes due to the city. As the primary mortgage holder, the city, on August 1st, 1929, took control of the arena's assets and immediately offered the arena for sale by tender with bids to be received by the end of August 1929. The debt-encumbered uh, debt arena, which still lacked artificial ice-making equipment, attracted no bidders, and on September 3, 1929, Alderman J.M. Willard introduced a motion authorizing the city to install an artificial ice-making plant in the arena. It was no doubt felt that this would make the arena more marketable. The ice-making plant was approved and was installed at a cost of $25,000. It was operational by November 6th. But even before this, council approved a lease worth $5,000 a year and signed by uh, a James C. Bell and Colonel Edward Knox, both of Toronto. This lease expired in April of 1933 and was replaced by another in May of that year, under which A.O. Farnham 
and his partner, Mr. Kilgore, agreed to rent the arena for $3,500 per year. The arrangement did not go well, and by early 1935, Mr. Farnham and Mr. Kilgore found themselves approximately $1,500 in arrears. On August 17, 1936, the city took over direct management of the arena and named Albert E. LeMond to direct arena operations. In part of result of the, as a result of the depression, arena revenues were insufficient to meet the operating costs, which included 5000 a year in debt charges on the mortgage and the artificial ice plant. As early as 1936, investigations were underway to find a summer use for the arena, and in 1939, it was decided to add roller skating facilities to the arena. Early in 1940, a roller skating floor was installed at the cost of $3,706, and 300 pairs of roller skates were purchased for almost $1,200 from the Chicago Roller Roller Skate Company. Councils hoped that the expenditure would result in a greatly increased revenue was quickly realized as local skaters flocked to what was called one of the best roller floors in Ontario. The opening night for the roller skating was April 27, 1940, with skating advertised to begin at 8 p.m. Eager skaters began to arrive long before this, and by 8.10 p.m., all 300 pairs of skates had been rented. It was evident that 300 pairs of skates were insufficient, so more were ordered. Skating was booming, and Council immediately authorized the purchase of both a Hammond electric organ at the cost of almost $3,500 and a public address uh, uh, system at a cost of $434. Thanks to the popularity of roller skating, the arena was finally starting to pay off, but this property came close to being lost when fire broke out at the arena on December the 3rd, 1944. Fire department was called to the arena at 8.25 p.m., and when they arrived, they found flames shooting from the boarded-up windows at the back of the building. They smashed open the rear exit and, in the words of a contemporary press report, were greeted with a blast of flame. The fire, which had started under the southwest stairwell and had spread under the seats, was thought to have been started by a discarded cigarette butt. The fire was brought under control within 20 minutes, but considerable time was required to douse all the smoldering joists to ensure that the fire was completely out. Thanks to the quick response of the fire department, damage was minimal, with a repair estimate set at about $3,000. In 1951, Council approved $78,000 for the first major renovations at the arena since the building was opened. Improvements included new refreshment booths just inside the Shade Street entrance and a new paint job which required, uh, which transformed the arena into the most colorful ice palace in Ontario. The renovations called for most of the outside woodwork to be painted in shutter green, the new entrance doors in carnival red, and the lanterns above in aluminum. In addition, new refrigeration pipes were installed as were new sideboards and screens. In the years that followed, further changes occurred, including the installation of sprinkler systems and of heating units to provide some warmth for uh, for spectators. When Dixon Center opened on November 3rd, 1966, roller skating was moved to that facility and the Galt Arena began to maintain ice year-round. When the arena opened in 19, was opened in 1922, it was intended to be one of the city's show places, and over the years has lived up to its building. 
The arena has seen numerous events from circuses to the annual elementary school ice um, skating races. It has provided space for both religious gatherings and industrial shows. It has seen the Allen Cup won by both the Terriers and the Galt Hornets. Now, the Galt Arena has seen its fair share of big names take to the ice. For a short time, at least, the home uh, ice for future hockey greats, such as Gordy Howe, Terry Sawchuck, Bobby Hull, just to name a few, who played some of their junior hockey here. While many people speak of Gordy Howe playing at the Galt Arena and for the Galt Junior Red Wings, he actually only practiced with the team and played in a few exhi exhibition games. He wasn't able to suit up for regular season games due to a rule at the time that limited import players from Western Canada, which included Saskatchewan, where Gordy was from. Although I have heard that due to a loophole, he was able to play one regular season game in 1944. Mr. Howe also um, attended GCI briefly and actually spent time working at the uh, Galt Medal. A really interesting book on Howe's time in Galt is available by Dave Maneri called A Year in Galt. There are a ton of other great players who have played or spent time honing their skills at the Galt Arena. They include, among others, Red Kelly, Howie Meeker, John Muckler, Kirk Maltby, Marty Turco, Todd Harvey, and scores of other NHLers, most recently including Brian Little of the Winnipeg Jets and uh, Ryan Ellis of the Nashville Predators. The Galt Arena has been a recreational facility used in both summer and winter by uncounted uh, members of the community in its near 100-year history. The historical significance of the arena was recognized in April 1944, sorry, 1994, when Galt Arena Gardens was designated as a heritage structure by council in a vote of, get this, 7 to 4. The designation was challenged but was upheld in March of 1995 following an Ontario Municipal Board hearing, which is crazy to think about today that there would be any question of designating the building. Shortly after this decision, renovations initially set at $5 million were approved. The refurbished Galt Arena Gardens, claiming the distinction of being the world's oldest continuing operating arena, was officially reopened in November of 1997. In February 1998, Cambridge Council gave tentative approval to a plan brought forward by John St. John and Rich Murphy of Mural Works to produce murals which uh, were to be mounted on the interior of the arena. The murals were to reflect the sporting history of the, of the community and were ex expected to be the first of a series of uh, building murals to tell the city's story. Final uh, approval for the arena murals was received in September 98, following the development of a citywide public uh, artworks policy. The murals were unveiled at a special ceremony on November 17, 2000. The Galt Arena has uh, remained a home for uh, the Cambridge Winterhawks until 2017, when they look to join a proposed new Junior Canadian Hockey League. As of 2021, this league still has not come to fruition. Uh, the uh, Winterhawks haven't played uh, a game in the arena since. Um, now we have uh, the Cambridge Redhawks, uh, who actually began their history as the Hespler Shamrocks back in about 1960, are now the primary tenant of the uh, of the arena, competing in the Greater Ontario Junior Hockey League. It's also the arena is still home to a number of youth teams. 
Now, on a personal note, I was able to visit the Galt Arena last year for the first time in years, and it was, wow, was it ever a treat. Um, it has that old rink vibe that I remember from going to places like the Montreal Forum and Maple Leaf Gardens. It's amazing how a less intimate arenas, uh, new arenas feel today, um, uh, compared to like the old barns, uh, like, like the Galt Arena. While newer uh, rinks have like larger capacities and more amenities and luxury suites and all that stuff, um, they can be allowed and all that. Nothing matches the feel of the smaller rink that allow you to feel closer to the action. And the Galt Arena is one of the few remaining that give you that feeling. I was able to get a tour from a gentleman who had spent decades working at the arena, and it was a joy to experience it with him as a guide. I was able to get the behind-the-scenes tour and some really cool stories and really got to appreciate its importance in the community even more. With the current COVID uh, pandemic, while it continues, and the 100th anniversary of the Galt Arena approaches, I'd love to see some sort of uh, celebration when the situation improves. It would be great to have something like a Rogers hometown hockey stop at the Galt Arena Gardens. I hope you enjoyed this look at the world-famous Galt Arena Gardens. Once again, I have to give a shout-out to my main research source, a part of our past by Jim Quantrell. This is an excellent source for anyone looking to learn about local history, especially beginners. It's available at Idea Exchange uh, to read. As always, please give the podcast a follow on social media and download it wherever you get your podcasts. It's available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as on iHeartRadio. Thanks again for joining me as we continue to explore our story.